can't be here, man. Stop moving. Mama, I love you. Mama. Derek Chauvin. The trial. The verdict. The sentencing. Where do we go from here? Join host Frank Falvey and our Radio Roundtable, higher education consultant Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard Health and Human Rights Executive Director Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people explore the ongoing journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank Falvey with a journey toward a more perfect union. Our normal panel is here with us today, PJ, Leah, Jeff, and Michael. Good morning. The topic today is going to be the jury trial of Chauvin that has just finished and has filed a guilty uh, verdict. And there are different aspects of uh, jury service. First of all, I'd like you to know that my wife, at 79 years of age, has just been given a federal, a U.S. district call to jury duty. And let me tell you, it was an experience trying to find the spot that said she's over 70 and can decline going. <laughs> and I hope they got the message. <laughs> but uh, the aspects of the prosecution in the defense in a trial, and I think there was an overwhelming feeling that this verdict uh, had to come back as guilty, not only because of the evidence that was seen, uh, but also because of the cultural surroundings uh, of uh, what might happen if they didn't come back. Uh, and now there is a, an appeal, and part of that appeal is because one of the jurors was wearing a black Lives Matter t-shirt at a Washington, D.C. rally at which the parents of uh, uh, Mr. Floyd spoke. So juries juries are kind of a mix to represent uh, the community. Unfortunately, people uh, my wife's age and other older Americans tend not to do jury duty, and too many people are not in the mix of how they're called so where would you like to begin, Michael, on this trial? Well, you know, let's start with uh, what I call the uniqueness of the trial. I'm going to give you a personal sort of insight. I've had a lot of friends who, like me, followed the trial. And at the end, called me up and said, you know, that's a really great sort of template for how these trials ought to go in the future. And I've pushed back on every single one of my friends who said that and say, this is not a template for anything other than the Chauvin trial. This poor man, and I feel for him as, a, uh, as both a human being and as a policeman, because he got caught up in not only his own perspective about the community where he was obligated to protect and serve, but also in his own belief about what policing was. And unfortunately, on that particular day, he ran into a series of events that <clears throat> if you're a religious person, 
you've got to say that there was some kind of divine force behind what happened. I mean, and I can get into that more in terms of the discussion. But the evidence was so overwhelming against him and the other officers that I don't think that this trial does any more than say that the evidence proved the day uh, and that the jury saw the evidence for what it was, overwhelming in the fact that uh, this man was responsible for the death of George Floyd. You know, I would agree with that. Uh, the interesting thing, well, first of all, when you talk about template, I think the trial itself was conducted in all reasonableness, both by the prosecution, by the overseeing judge, et cetera. And so in that sense, uh, they were sticking to a template, the standard template, uh, which is good. And I think that they wanted to make sure they did that as best they could so that this trial would not be called into question in the future. Yet here we are calling the trial into question in the future, in part because something unique happened. We have now seen many instances where cell phone cameras have led to convictions. And in fact, this trial is a classic case where the cell phone recording of George Floyd's last minutes on earth were part of the compelling evidence. Now we see cell phone recordings returning once again to arbitrate whether or not everyone on the jury was on their best behavior, or better said, did they represent themselves well as both the prosecution and the defense attorneys vetted them in the selection process. And I think that is going to continue to keep this story in the news. So we've seen cell phone video on both sides of the equation before and after the convictions and probably playing a very substantial role both before and after the convictions. So that's going to be a, a, a fascinating extension of what we all thought was pretty obvious. You know, I'd like to chime in and talk about jury service and the importance of juries broadly. And, Amen to uh, that. you know, uh, I have been a trial lawyer now for uh, 32 years. And I've always loved the jury process because uh, the jury is the most purest form of democracy in action. The jury takes the role of the decision maker and the fact finder and issues what's called a verdict. And verdict in Latin uh, means to speak the truth. And when that jury spoke, in the Chauvin trial, they did indeed speak the truth. And uh, I have always been amazed at the power and the ability of 12 people who have no real interest in the outcome other than to determine what the facts are and are picked because of their ignorance of the particular case and who are brought together as peers of the defendant on trial who sit in actually in judgment. And it's, it's always amazed me. And when I speak to a jury uh, as, a, as a lawyer advocating for my particular case, and I've done a lot of civil cases as opposed to, as opposed to criminal cases, and, and I remind them of their 
awesome power and their awesome responsibility and tell them that they are the conscience of the community and it is your opportunity to stand up and say to the president of the corporation, you are actually walking into the boardroom of the XYZ Corporation and you are telling them what you think about what they did in this particular set of circumstances, whether it be uh, a, a product liability case or uh, some other type of civil framework. And one of the things that I remind them is that they were chosen for that particular service on that particular day because they are superior people. And superior people are the eyes of the blind. And they rise up on the occasion to help those who have fallen. And as I heard that verdict be read in the Chauvin case, I said, wow, they are truly superior people who stood up for their obligation on that particular day. And by God, did they speak the truth. And uh, I was very proud to be uh, a, an officer of the court and uh, witness that happening. So um, great day for justice and a great day for our, our government, which is of the people and by the people. And thank God the people spoke that day. I have two points. And, and Jeff, I want to play a little bit devil's advocate on your uh, comment that this is the, the purest form of democracy, because I have heard of many people who have strong opinions, which obviously in a democracy, people are allowed to have strong opinions being kicked out and not being allowed to be on the jury. Like, you know, the questioning that happens before uh, by the lawyers or, you know, people have said to me, if you don't want to be in jury duty, just mention you have a doctoral degree and they will kick you out. So let me take off where uh, Natalia was talking about in terms of jury selection. And I'll tell you a, a very interesting fact. Um, mm -hmm. It was not until 2014 that uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts allowed lawyers to question jurors in a process we call voir dire. Now, that's a process that's been going on uh, throughout the nation in other states for centuries. And it took uh, an act of the legislature in 2014 to allow lawyers to question witnesses at the time. Um, I will push back a little bit on what Natalia said. Uh, when I'm picking a jury, I want people who will pay attention. I'm looking for people who have not brought their bias to the table, who have not uh, written something on their juror form or answered a question that indicates to me that they've already formed their judgment in their mind. I want somebody who's going to keep an open mind, who will listen to the evidence and render a verdict based on the evidence. Now, there are two types of challenges that uh, lawyers can use. Uh, one is a challenge for cause. And if you can indicate and argue to the judge that there's some reason why that particular juror should not uh, sit on a case, uh, you know, they've demonstrated uh, a bias in one way or another, then you can have that juror struck for cause. There are also what are called preemptory challenges, where you do not have to give any reason for uh, eliminating a juror. However, that practice has come into question in, in circumstances when lawyers have attempted to use their preemptory challenges to challenge someone based on their race. 
that is illegal. That's prohibited. And uh, if if a judge detects a pattern that you are eliminating jurors because they are a particular race, your peremptory challenge will not be allowed. So uh, it's a it's a difficult process. But what you're trying to do is to get a truly unbiased panel who uh, will listen to the evidence and uh, you know render a, a true verdict. And I love having a diverse jury. Yeah, you. You do like somebody who, you know, will speak articulately and uh, perhaps be the, the foreman of the jury and take, uh, you know, I'm, I say take charge, but someone who can convene the jurors and get everybody uh, to uh, say their opinion. A true leader, a true foreperson of a jury will hear from each of the uh, 12 jurors and let them speak their piece and not call for an immediate vote as soon as you walk in the room so you can get out of there in 20 minutes. You know, you want people who will, uh, you know, do their job fairly and completely. So, um, you know, some, some lawyers do it differently, but I would say uh, it's a great process and it works. And uh, I have never seen a jury uh, render a verdict that I've questioned and I have not won all of my cases. Uh, they tend to get it right. Yeah, my experience is that the judge also disqualifies jurors. The judge, yes, the judge can disqualify jurors. Uh, it's typically if the judge sees evidence uh, where that person cannot be impartial or has some bias, so the judge will step in. Uh, but more often than not, the judge will say, well, counsel, what do you think about X, Y, Z on a witness? And that will take place in a sidebar conference that goes over to the opposite side of the bench and uh, they actually play white noise so the people in the panel can't hear the lawyers saying well uh you know this particular juror has got this particular bias because you know that uh, probably would not sit well with the other jurors knowing that they're being talked about in that fashion so it takes place uh, out of the hearing of uh, uh the rest of the people in the courtroom what many people said is, okay, so the trial showed that there are bad apples in the police, and that's good. And that doesn't, you know, for many people who have been calling for police reform, um, it felt like people were celebrating prematurely. Uh, we're not going to change policing practices case by case in the courtroom. Of course, the courtroom is important for growth violations, but there was something not unique about George Floyd. Men are you know, dying, especially black men, at the hands of the police every day. Um, I think the numbers are a thousand a year. I need to double check. So if that is the case, you know, is is holding this up as a as a unique, isolated case? And, you know, the, the skeptics, and I heard this from some people are saying, you know, the police itself decided to speak against this officer because they wanted to sort of create legitimacy, that most policing is okay and that he acted in some horrible way. And, and I, you know, Michael, I, I want your views. And you called, you know, Chauvin a, a poor man. I think you gave him a lot of grace in your introductory remarks. But I think maybe that's what you're getting at, that, you know, policing practices are what is at the heart here of what we should be discussing, not just, you know, one man acting in some irrational way. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, Again, it's. I think this is an actually a great case study for 
overall, some of the things that can go wrong. And in, unfortunately, there were a lot of things that went wrong here. From the moment that the young man behind the counter decided to tell his boss that, look, there's a $20 bill here that is, in my opinion, a counterfeit bill. And yet at the same time, there was another $20 counterfeit bill that he recognized right away and told the guy who was trying to pass it to him, no, I'm not going to take this. You, you know, this is not a legitimate bill. So he handled those two instances differently. And he was under the belief that George Floyd didn't realize that it was a counterfeit bill. And so when he told his boss, then they go out and I think the rest of the story is, you know, that part of the story has been told very well. But the rest of the series of incidences, uh, when the police arrive, just it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And uh, the unfortunate part was the training for Chauvin was so flawed and he was such a flawed officer that he didn't even realize the pathway that he was going down that ultimately led to George Floyd's death until it was too late. And when he did realize that this had led to his demise, he didn't show any remorse. Well, I'm just doing my job. And so now he's going to pull over the cover of being a police officer instead of owning up to the fact that, yes, I could have made a mistake, uh, which I think would have helped in his defense if there had been some even afterthought of remorse here or, wow, I, you know, I, I didn't mean to go that far. And that had been said a year earlier. Uh, and I think that's part of the idea of policing that we've got to get at, that we, we can't ask our police in this country to be superhuman beings, all knowledgeable and infallible. They are not. They are human beings, just like you and me. And they have to realize at some point in a situation, is it life-threatening? And, in, and if it is, I would defend them to the hilt to protect their life and the life of others. Even if it looks bad, and there are some situations where it looks bad, but at the same time, these folks are being put in those situations. And the problem that I have is, are we asking them at the core of it to be human beings too? And at some point in time, you literally have to put your life at risk in order to show that humanity. Let's take the instance uh, that came after the Floyd case where the young woman had a knife and was threatening someone else. Do I use deadly force that keeps me out of harm way of the knife or do I inject myself into this situation and try to protect the woman with the knife as well as the woman who is being threatened? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I will say that I don't know if we're training our police to really look at how do I protect me and others. Uh, and Chauvin, I think, just is a great example in slow motion of how his training failed him, uh, his humanity failed him. And at the end of the day, George Floyd lost his life because of it. No, I'll say this. Uh, one thing that stood out 
to me from that trial is uh, the fact that you know police officers and the police chief and training experts came in and testified that Chauvin did not follow his training and that his behavior on that day and in that particular move was prohibited as part of the training. And I uh, met with uh, many police officers following that incident as Massachusetts and the legislature was considering um, police reform uh, and legislation. And every single one of them who sat with me and talked to me about that particular case and that particular conduct said, we are never trained to use a knee to the neck. Mm -hmm. In fact, we are trained not to use a knee to the neck because it is lethal and is, it's unnecessary. And uh, I did not hear anyone who condoned or supported what Derek Chauvin did on that day, which, which led to the demise of, uh, of George Floyd. And the thing that was unique and different about this particular case is, I, I will say it's one of the rare occasions where I saw so many police-related folks come in and testify that what one of their fellow officers did was wrong. His own boss, the chief of police mm-hmm. in Minneapolis said, my employee, my, uh, my officer did not follow his training and what he did was wrong. And that to me is compelling. And that seems to be somewhat of a turning point in how these cases are handled. Um, and, you know, it gave me a, a, a real sense that uh, justice was served. It's not going to bring George Floyd back, but um, it does provide a measure of a measure a measure of truth, and we un- now completely understand what happened, and uh, that everyone recognizes that was wrong, and uh, this man is going to be punished uh, as a result of what he did on that day. Jeff, can I ask you to speak a little bit about qualified immunity um, more broadly for police and how that plays in? Because, you know, one argument I've heard is that, yes, in this case, it was recorded, it was on video, it's so clear cut. The police department has to sort of say this this person acted outside our rules. But if it hadn't been recorded, um, if there wasn't as much evidence, then, you know, police unions are strong. And, and you know, the, the camaraderie of like protecting your peer, that that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't so clear cut. And I, I want to think through this with you a little bit more. Yeah. Well, uh, on the qualified immunity piece, I will say that's a 50 year old doctrine that was created through a series of uh, judicial cases. And it's certainly a concept that is under review today. And qualified immunity has implications both for state level crimes and for federal level crimes. So, you know, we could do something about qualified immunity in Massachusetts, but it would have absolutely no impact on what happens uh, in the federal courts, which use their own qualified immunity. So qualified immunity would protect a police officer that was acting in accordance with with known standards. In order to defeat the defense of qualified immunity, uh, you would have to prove that that particular officer on that particular occasion was doing something that was against a known 
rule or standard in, of training. Um, I think that was, was clear uh, in this particular case. Uh, the, the legislature in Massachusetts, um, and this was an amendment that I filed to the police reform bill, called for a commission uh, to be established to study qualified immunity and make recommendations about what we should do uh, with that. And uh, we'll share with you that uh, they met for the first time uh, last week and a panel has been put together. And I think you're gonna hear an awful lot more about qualified immunity uh, over the next couple of months. And uh, the conversation will continue about uh, whether that doctrine should continue in Massachusetts or whether it should be changed in any way. Um, it's brought in as a way to protect police officers uh, in the way that Michael was speaking about, that, uh, you know, we're all human and, uh, you know, we're, we're not infallible and uh, we should not be held to a standard of perfection. And if we make a mistake uh, and it's an honest mistake, then, uh, you know, we should be covered by the doctrine of qualified immunity. But how far that progresses along the line uh, is something that's up for more debate. I hope that I know, helps and answers that question. I know one of the proposals for replacing qualified immunity, and believe it or not, this is coming from, uh, uh, I think, some of the Republicans in the, at the federal level, which is to the initial responsibility is to the department, both criminal and, well, not criminal, but in terms of civil uh, responsibility. And that criminal responsibility can move to the officer, I think, still when he or she violates a policy rule regulation or his or her training and not necessarily call it qualified immunity, but it's a two-step test. Uh, first, it, you know, was the department civilly responsible? And then next is the officer within the scope of his or her duties and responsibility training. And then if they are outside of that, then the criminal charges can be levied against that particular officer. And just as a personal aside, I remember uh, uh, when I was in law school, uh, as a matter of fact, I lost points on a test because I did not look at the alternatives to qualified immunity. Uh, I thought it was a black and white answer. And uh, unfortunately, because I didn't look at what are some of the alternatives to qualified immunity, I lost points on that particular test. I still passed it, but still it was a matter of, uh, and it was a criminal, and it was a criminal course. So the idea that qualified immunity is sovereign is not the rule uh, across the country. And there have been investigations all across this country and looks at qualified immunity, not just for police, but you know, some folks may not know that qualified immunity expands into a lot of civic uh, or governmental jobs. Uh, EMS, for example, if, if I'm driving down the road at 150 miles an hour and my sirens are going and I'm trying to get to the hospital and I go through a red light and I kill a family of four inside of a car, qualified immunity will protect me from any kind of civil or criminal offense and stuff for, for that action because I was acting within the scope of my responsibilities and he is an EMS driver. And that's the question that I lost points on because I thought that <laughs> I thought that it was a black and white answer there. 
but not always. You know, if you want to um, look at qualified immunity across the country, uh, there's a federal court case that came out of the Mississippi uh, federal court. It's called Jameson versus McClendon. Uh, it was in 2020. It is probably the, the most thorough examination of qualified immunity that I've ever read. It's about an 80 point, uh, I mean, an 80 page uh, decision. And if there's a way that we can post materials with this particular show, I'd love to include that as a link for people to read to just, uh, you know, uh, get a better feel and understanding for how qualified immunity uh, works and some of the criticisms uh, of it. You know, it's also, uh, Natalia, I, I think your point earlier, too, getting back to the jury, it's also important, too, to realize that there's a lot of history regarding the selection of juries and with you know, I know our good friend Jeff does his best to be both honest and a great officer of the court, but I couldn't necessarily say that over history, that has been the tenor of all attorneys. Uh, there are many who will, in the face of a trial with the kind of racial overtones that the Chauvin trial had, will try to skew the jury. Uh, they will try to eliminate people who, just because of who they are, they believe have an inherent bias. Uh, here's a black citizen, a white cop. Uh, you try to get as many white citizens who are pro-cop as you can on the jury. And if you're the defense uh, attorney, and that's well within the scope of their responsibility, uh, but I'm not sure that that's the most ethical thing and how you correct that, Jeff, I don't know. Not to Leah. I, you know, I agree with you that we can't always look at the jury process as one that just because of its nature yields the correct answer. Uh, there've been many trials over our history, especially involving racial overtones or when there's a black man being accused of a very, virulent crime, if you will, against the white community, where white juries have convicted them to death in many instances, uh, unfairly. And so question is, historically, how do you reconcile that when you know it's still going on? Let, let me go back a minute to qualified immunity in another subject. The Massachusetts language, I believe, is on the side of protecting the police officer that was passed in the last crime bill. But in this trial, this trial immediately brought action in states after state very quickly. How did we so much coalesce around changing the law around policing, and yet the shootings in schools, the killings in schools, the, the gun violence, and, and the, the violence in our cities where our children are being shot and killed, how come there's no coalescence around that issue that people want to come together and will actually put an effort forward to solve the problem? Well, I would say on the, on the gun control piece, that's more on the federal level. Um, I can say emphatically that uh, following the Newtown shooting, 
the legislature in Massachusetts was in action immediately and within 18 months passed a comprehensive gun reform piece of legislation uh, that was signed into law in, in 20, uh, I believe it was 2014. Uh, we acted uh, you know, very quickly on that topic and we probably have the strongest gun control legislation uh, in the entire United States. Uh, I'm not saying we're immune from those types of uh, uh, events, but uh, they're you know, not something that uh, we have witnessed, thank God, and I'm gonna knock on wood, that we have not witnessed in, in a long time uh, in Massachusetts. I will say with regard to this uh, particular trial, you know, we acted and some complained that we acted too quickly, that we didn't, uh, we didn't wait and, uh, and you know, do studies before uh, we took action. I, I really take issue with that. Uh, many of the things that we did in the police reform legislation have been things that have been talked about for, for 10 years, going back uh, for many years, and it was things that police chiefs were asking us to do for a long time. Uh, and I will say that the, the, uh, the incident involving George Floyd certainly was a catalyst for us getting it over the goal line. But, you know, we, we deal with these questions uh, each and every day and, um, you know, act deliberately to make sure we, we get it right. And with regard to, you know, issues that need further study, we, we formed about 15 commissions in that police reform legislation that are going to make further recommendations for uh, what we uh, can do. So, you know, we try to respond as quickly as possible. Some say we don't do it quick enough. Some say we act too quickly. Um, you can't please everybody uh, in this particular business, but you, you do the best you can. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to be a part of uh, this legislature uh, that I think is, is filled with people who are dedicated to the task and uh, doing a good job. But I think Frank's point is well taken. At the federal level, when you look at the swiftness after George Floyd's murder in May of last year, how quickly legislation, uh, well, actually, legislation was already in the hopper, but how quickly that legislation was sort of brought to the front. Uh, and but it was not passed at the federal level. I, oh, I no. Oh, no. It, no, 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 they, no. They are painfully no. slow oh, yeah, at the it, federal level. <laughs> well, not only painfully slow, but painfully obstreperous, too. So, uh, you know, last year. Uh, so don't forget, we're still talking about the prior administration and their approach to this, which was to bury their head in the sand and ignore it and say oh, that I there is no I forgot about problem. that past, uh, past. That's right. So, you know, so it's only been, you know, it's only been a year. Uh, but at the same time, this particular uh, trial, I think, has pointed out, and uh, you know, to your to your point, Frank, uh, uh, the differences between how communities react to uh, policing and how the country reacts to gun control. And believe it or not, the legislature, the I'm talking about the federal legislature now. Uh, you, you know, the, the Congress has taken a position where uh, even though 70% or more of the country want gun control, they ignore it. While when the black community is up in arms, uh, and this actually goes to another point of the trial, 
when the black community is up in arms around the oppressive, terroristic, killing nature of the police in their communities, something gets done because I think that has the immediate volatility to it. While you don't see, uh, you know, unfortunately, when the kids were marching in the street, I, Frank, I'm with you. I don't understand how when I see kids marching in the street in terms of gun control, how it is that adults in Congress can ignore that. Uh, but thank goodness they at least don't ignore those in the community who are saying, uh-uh, we're not going to take this from our police departments. And I think that's the difference in terms of the approach by Congress on the two issues. I'd like to take a moment to talk about <clears throat> the get back to the jury itself. There are two jurors here that we, we want to put a magnifying glass on. One juror we never got to talk to. But a couple of people have pointed out that there was one juror on the panel who really got wrapped around the axle on protocol and process and had a million questions about, well, what does this mean? Well, what does that mean? And just seemed to go round and round and round before finally acquiescing to what everybody else in the room felt was obvious. Uh, if this person couldn't be brought around or, or come to any conclusion, they might well have ended up with a hung jury. But uh, after several hours of discussion, you know, I don't know if this person was simply trying to relive it, 12 Angry Men episode or, or what, but uh, it was clear that they were obsessing about something. So we, we don't know that person and the first person in any way. Uh, the second point is, uh, as both sides are trying to uh, make their selection and in the voir dire process, say yay or nay to this or that juror, this new evidence that I talked about earlier with the cell phone recordings comes to light where we have to admit that a juror sat there and made a claim that they effectively through that claim had no bias or had no prior presence. But there's the cell phone evidence that says they were there listening to George Floyd's family. And that was questioned directly before the fact and denied. And then come to discover after the verdict that they misrepresented past events. And this is the defense's current claim that they want a new trial. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, a, it's a, a real point of contention from the defense's standpoint, if they can make it stick. Now, we think that in going around on a new trial, it's in fact going to come out to the same verdict. And I think that's going to play some part of it with that reconsideration. Uh, I've been called to jury duty, duty five times. Uh, I've presented myself all five times as a willing juror. I was accepted twice. What I've seen in the jury room among my peers, I would have to say my recommendation would be that not only should the lawyers select the jury as they did, I think that it is up to both sides, the attorneys as officers of the court, to once again re-interview the jurors to select the foreperson. In both cases, I felt that the juries that I participated in had weak forepersons. Now, you don't want somebody who's overly opinionated and going to inflict their will on everyone. You want to find the most objective person a person who has conducted meetings before, a person who understands how to give everyone their value, their voice, and guide everyone towards a conclusion that they all feel is right and just. 
but some four persons are not necessarily qualified to do that. Either they volunteer for it, and by virtue of the fact that nobody else wants to do it, everyone else says, yeah, fine. And the jury sort of wallows around in the water trying to figure out what to do because there's no leadership. Um, so that's one recommendation that I would make that does not but, uh, fundamentally but, uh, change the jury system. But Pete, in my experience, the foreperson is picked by the judge, not by the fellow jurors. And uh, did you experience something differently? I did indeed. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. I think, you know, it's the judge that fixed the four that picks right. the four person. The judge is watching the jurors and looking for that person who's paying close attention, has a skill set that can hmm. allow them to be in a leadership role. Um, you know, and the other thing when I was listening to your comments, one thing I'm not sure many people understand, but in order to convict somebody of a crime, beyond a reasonable doubt, that jury has to be unanimous. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you could have one person who can hold out and stall the entire process. In a civil case, mm -hmm. unlike the criminal cases, it's uh, 12, uh, I'm sorry, 10 mm -hmm. out of 12 yeah. that uh, have to uh, agree on a verdict because the standard is less. It's a preponderance of the evidence, but mm -hmm. uh, for a conviction of a crime, we, uh, we ask that it be uh, unanimous. A couple other things that are gonna come up on that appeal, aside from uh, the potential juror bias, is the judge's decision in that case uh, not to sequester the jury during the trial. I think they'll make uh, some hay with that argument. Uh, the decision not to um, change the location of mm -hmm. the proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, they may argue that uh, there was bias because anybody who lived in Minneapolis uh, knew about this uh, case. And, and I also um, understand that they're uh, alleging some in intimidation of uh, the defense's expert witnesses. So there are going to be a lot of issues raised in this appeal but I think it goes back to one of the points you made. Uh, I don't care how many times you throw these facts before a jury, um, they're going to come back and convict mm -hmm. on the evidence that was uh, presented to them. So, uh, yeah. And if I could jump in, I, please. you know, I, I think that two things, uh, and let me take your points, Pete, you know, uh, in order. The first one, uh, a juror who sits there and wants to go over all of the evidence, I think is doing his or her job. A juror who wants to understand, well, what does this mean? Is doing their job. That's what deliberation is all about. And even if it's only one, if the others walk in and they've already have a preconceived idea, okay, the, you know, the person's guilty, the deliberation process should be honored. And if there's only one person in the room who wants to go through that, then so be it. And they do it until they are unanimous. So I don't I have any problem. I, I don't have a problem with that juror. Yeah. None I, of us were know. there. But yeah. to have other jurors characterize that person as being wrapped around the axle on minutiae is, is yeah, yeah I poo-poo that and I say well it's shame on those who think that that was minutia they're do you know you know a man's life and his freedom is at risk here so I you know I I poo-poo the other jurors who were criticizing him or her whoever they were the second part in terms of juror bias you know you know you know here's the thing too when we ask a person to serve on a jury 
and we asked them the question, have you formed an opinion about this? And they say, no, I haven't. We literally have to take them at their word mm-hmm. because we're not asking them, have you lived in a bubble for the last year? We asking you, have you formed an opinion about this? I could be in a church service and George Floyd's mom walk in and she delivers the homily for that service. And I may think it's a nice service, but does that influence me in terms of now sitting there for Derek Chauvin and judging whether or not his innocence or guilt weighed against the evidence and stuff is at stake here? Uh, I think, again, that particular piece if we go down the pathway of thinking because I attended a rally where someone's mom spoke, that that biases me as a jury, we're going to be in trouble as a country because social media, television, and all of the things that come at us on a day-to-day basis, some of it I remember, some of it I don't. Even if I, were, uh, I was at a rally, I wear a Black Lives Matter hat and T-shirt all the time. Does that mean that I'm against uh, Derek Chauvin? No. It means I wear a Black Lives Matter hat and T-shirt. That's what it means. I'm at a rally, and mm-hmm. I hear a lot of speakers. And, there, you know, and George Floyd's mom, this was not the George Floyd's mom's rally. It was a Black Lives Matter rally. Right. And there were a lot of speakers that day. So I guess what I'm doing is arguing the prosecution's case here. That doesn't indicate juror bias. When that person walked in there, he or she had the same evidence that had been presented to him as the others. And to say that because he was at a rally prejudiced him somehow, it's to negate the other 11 members and I actually- of the jury. Can I jump in? I agree with Michael. And I also feel that the 11 who weren't at a Black Lives Matter rally maybe are biased in the other direction. I was at Black Lives Matter's rally. You know, the country was going through a real revolution last year and a real engagement with this topic. Does it mean that the 11 are basically who didn't participate in Black Lives Matter are biased towards the other direction? That, you know, if you were in any way neutral, you would have been at a rally last year because everybody was waking up to the fact that Black men and women were dying at disproportionate numbers because of COVID. There was an awakening. So I don't understand why not being at a rally couldn't be at our, I mean, I'm being a little extreme here, but I'm not. I think that it shows another bias. Like I know people who have never been to rallies, people of all ages, of all races were at rallies last year. And so I don't know. I, I wonder, like, is there such a thing as an unbiased or does it just mean status quo, uh, a historical, uh, you know, just trying to, protect a certain side. I just don't understand what non-bias, and maybe Jeff, you can, you can jump in on that. I would say, I mean, we all have bias. I mean, the, the first person that stands up and says, I, I, I'm not biased, I'm not prejudiced. I mean, we all, we're all human. We're all infallible. We all have uh, uh, deficiencies. And I think, uh, you know, Michael made a great point earlier that when you ask a question of a juror, uh, you have to take them at their faith that they're, uh, they're being truthful to you. So, uh, you know, the, the query would go and the, the judge would ask them questions or the lawyers would ask them questions about uh, whether they're biased. But at the end of the day, the final question that would come from the judge is, you know, based on, uh, you know, your experience, uh, do you think you could sit here as an impartial juror? And the juror says mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. or no. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, That's if it. they say yes, they're going to be excused. If they say no, well, guess what? The lawyers have an opportunity to exercise one of their preemptory challenges. So if, if you still think that that juror cannot be unbiased, well, you have an opportunity to excuse that juror and use one of your challenges. But you, you have to be a realist when you're talking to a jury and understand that they bring their own personal experience in their life to that jury box. I think, to me, that's what makes juries so unique and so powerful, is that they do bring uh, a life's worth of experience. And, and, and that could be a 20-year-old juror, that could be a 79-year-old juror, that could be a 40-year-old juror. They all bring something uh, to the table and magically, when 12 people get in a room and they begin doing their deliberations, they, uh, they arrive at the truth. And I'll share with you one experience that really convinced me of this, is I had tried a case for a week, and we had done everything up to the closing arguments. And right after the closing arguments, we settled the case, which meant that the jury did not have to render a verdict. You know, we were talking to the judge after that trial, and I said, uh, I said, Your Honor, I said, I've, we really went far in this process, and the jury was very attentive, and, and they uh, listened. I said, I'd hate to have them go home and feel like they did not do anything. Would you allow us to go into the jury room and talk to the jurors after the case? I said, it would be educational for us to understand what was going through their minds while they were sitting around, uh, you know, listening to the evidence. And I think it would be instructive for them to understand why they're not going to render a verdict in this case. Uh, At first he said no, because you're you're really not entitled to talk to jurors. But uh, then he went into the jury room and asked them if they'd be willing to sit and talk with the lawyers. And they said yes. And, uh, you know, we went and talked to them and I was amazed at the things that they had picked up during the trial. You know, some may think it's minutiae, and I agree with you, Michael, it's not minutiae. They, they were paying attention. They saw everything. Mm-hmm. They saw things in that case that I didn't see, and I was the lawyer in the case. <laughs> and it just gave me a sense of confidence that when people take on a responsibility like that, and they understand that they're doing the purest form of democracy, they take it seriously, and uh, I, I left that room with such a measure of comfort that uh, I continue to believe strongly in the jury process as the best way to resolve uh, disputes in this country. I know it's late in the day, but let me make this observation. As Michael has pointed out and other people have pointed out, for years we've had police shooting black individuals. We have parents saying that they talk to their sons and daughters to obey the police officer. We've had lately news year after year of of black officers shooting people resisting to be arrested. George Floyd, I believe, has been arrested before. Michael has explained that he when stopped by a police officer, has even put his hands outside of the car. What is missing 
today why people are resisting arrest and not following the police officer's direction? You know, Frank, that's a great question of perspective. And let me, uh, uh, because I had promised something early on in this broadcast, there was a series of incidences here. I don't think that George Floyd not following the directions of the police officer reply. And you can go from the moment when the guy that I most relate to, the old man who stopped and observed as they were pulling George Floyd out of the car because he was nosy and he was a community member and his following along with George telling him, you can't win, just do what they say. And George Floyd did that when he was sitting on the curb and he was, again, following the orders of the policeman. When the, the police trying to indicate to him, okay, we're going to arrest you and take you downtown. And he was handcuffed without resistance. When they tried to put him into the car and he got into the, and he told them, I'm claustrophobic, I can't get in there. And yet they tried to force him in there anyway. He was compliant, but told them he had an issue. The police didn't listen to him at that point. When now you're putting him out of the car and putting him on the ground and the old man is telling him, stop resisting. And he's telling the old man, I'm not resisting. And the woman comes up, the, the, the young lady comes up and starts to film. The mixed martial arts guy comes over and says, hey, you're choking the guy because he knows the holes. The young girl who is the cousin of the girl who's filming comes over and says to her cousin, what are they doing? The other audiences or the other people in the, you know, who come up, uh, including the EMS worker who was off duty, all of the incidences in this, Frank, don't point to a guy who's non-compliant. They point to a guy who has a particular ailment that the police aren't listening to. So I throw this back to all of our listeners. Do we have a Gestapo in this country to where we are obligated to no matter if they tell us to jump on one foot and bark like a dog, we have to then comply? Or is this the United States where, yes, you are a peace officer. Yes, you have certain things you can ask me to do. But again, I am a citizen and I have certain things that I don't have to do for you. And I want to jump in to agree with Michael to add that, you know, as a white woman, I have never been stopped by the police. Never. I have never been asked. I mean, I've been greeted nicely. I've been, you know, I interact and it's very good. But if I were a black woman, a black girl, chances are by my age, almost 40, I would have been stopped many times in my life. And that repetitive, this asking of like, why do they not cooperate? It's easy to say if chances are you're never going to be stopped or you're going to be stopped once, then you can cooperate. If you're being stopped every two, three months, if you're driving in your neighborhood, if you're being stopped in your own garden, if you're being stopped because you look suspicious, I mean, I think at some point it's exhausting and not cooperating, meaning speaking back and saying, what have I done wrong? Why are you stopping me again? You stopped me three months ago is a legitimate you know, response. I don't think we can blame people for feeling frustrated that racial profiling happens in our country. We should be asking, why is that happening? Why is racial profiling happening? Not why are people asking about their rights um, in a country like the United States? So 
I, I think it's unfair, unfair. And, and then the other counter argument is so many people have been killed in their own homes by the police, have been killed. You know, there are white, um, you know, Americans who are having a mental health crisis, holding guns, and the police manage to get them under control without killing them. Like the girl you mentioned, um, you know, Michael, who died, you know, holding a knife. How many, you know, de-escalations have happened with white girls holding knives? I don't know. Uh, but I assure you that I haven't heard of a white girl being shot at holding a knife. And I assure you that there are many people who have mental health crises and, and would appear to be um, violent, but our appearance, unfortunately, we are all biased and, and our, you know, what you look like, your skin color, your size, um, is these narratives. So I, I don't, I don't know, Frank, if, if we can talk about, you know, just cooperate if our system is just not treating people fairly all along your entire life from when you're five or seven to, you know, 70. You know, I'll just say, uh, you know, once again, riveting discussion, uh, you know, it's not the end. This is not the last time we're going to talk about this. This is not the last time we're going to see in an incidents like that. Uh, we're seeing changes in policing take place all over. And, uh, you know, one of the things I want to highlight in, in my closing is to highlight what the Franklin Police Department is, has done. They've added a social worker to their staff who will go out on calls and, uh, you know, recognize and help identify mental health issues that may be at play and ways to de-escalate uh, a situation. So we're seeing some changes take place and that's a great measure of comfort and uh, more people are talking about these issues. That's a sense of comfort. And uh, once again, I thank you all for, uh, for uh, participating in yet another lively discussion on, on an important topic about how we get to a more perfect union. Well, hearing uh, no other observations, I would like to uh, thank everyone. Uh, we've, we've had a somewhat uh, not thorough discussion, but pointed uh, observations in, on certain aspects of the uh, trial of uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Chauvin. Peter, what is the usual thing that you like to say at the end of the program? I'll chime in with this. This ain't over yet. We still have to hear, now that we have a verdict, what the sentencing will be. There are other police officers whose trials will be coming up in relation to this incident. So we are in the midst of an ongoing larger story. That said, if you have an opinion, please let us know. You can write us at info, I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Until then, I'm Peter Jay for everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.